2: Happy September, my friends. We have a great show in store for you today. Esau McCauley is back on the show. It's always a joy to talk to Esau. In fact, I remember one of the first times I talked to him, he told me I earned a gold star in that interview. I believe the first time Esau was on was episode 466, and we discussed his book, Reading While Black, which I tell him in the episode today, I just started seminary, you guys. I'm so proud of myself and also scared out of my mind. One of the books our professor is telling us to read this year is Reading While Black. And so I felt like student of the year already, because not only have I read that book, I love that book. In fact, I think for my class, we don't have to read the whole thing. And I told everyone in class, this is a book you need to read the whole thing. Well, Esau has a new book coming out next week. It's called How Far to the Promised Land? One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. This book had me flipping pages up till late in the night. I read it this summer. It comes out next week. This is Esau's story of his life, and more than his story, it's his family's story. In fact, it all starts one night when he answered the phone to learn that his father had died in a car crash. That begins his journey of looking back in his childhood and throughout his life, really going through his family history, seeking to understand the community that shaped him. How Far to the Promised Land is a book that questions our two simple narratives about poverty and upward mobility. A book which the people normally written out of the American dream are given voice. I love this book so much. I read it this summer. I really, really highly recommend you get this book. And I also highly recommend you get his other book because they're both so good. Love having Esau on. Again, he gave me another gold star today. I just think I want to interview Esau every week because he gives me gold stars. Guys, speaking of books, if you can't tell, I love books around here, but do you know about our book club? Have you heard me talk about the Happy Hour book club? If you haven't, let me tell you about it just for a second. I wanted to create a book club where we could get together and read a book and then talk to the author. I remember years ago, I was in a book club and one of my friends somehow scored the author joining us. And this is way before COVID, way before Zoom. She came in on Skype. And it literally was one of my favorite book club meetings ever. And so I want to do that for all of us. I pick a book each month, we read it together, and then the author joins us for a conversation where you can ask questions. You can like lean in. What did you not understand? What did you want to hear more of? We started this summer. So we're three books in. And this September, I'm happy to announce that we have a book by an author who was on the show this summer. Tessa Afshar joined me this summer for our Encounter series. It was episode 594, if you want to go back, this June. Well, I knew at the time she had a book coming out in November, and her book is called The Peasant King. It comes out in November, and we're going to read it this month in September. Here's what you get when you join our book club, is you get a free digital download of this book. So this book doesn't come out until early November. We get to read it during the month of September. You also get a conversation with the author at the end of the month, and you get all of our podcast episodes ad-free. It's $10 a month to join, so go to jamieivy.com slash Patreon. That's jamieivy.com slash Patreon, and you can join there and join us reading this month. All right, you guys, here is my conversation with Esau McCauley. Esau, welcome back to the happy hour.
3: Oh, thank you. Thank you. You actually have a lot of pressure on this pot on this, um, Oh, interview. why? Because you're one of like two or three people who got a gold star from and, my and reading while black... My, the question that you asked me during the interview about reading while black. So I'm gonna see if you can if you can ask a question to get you another gold star.
2: Oh wow, I'll never forget that moment.
3: I'm just ta- I remember it too.
2: Here I am now. <laughs> I can't remember what I specifically asked. I don't but remember what I remember you is. went, no one has asked about that. And I yes. was like, Gold star.
3: Yes. And like that, you also have the advantage of being on the front end of interviews, not after the book has like been out for a year or two. So it should be easy. You should win. This is like my third or fourth interview, so you still have some some ground to cover.
2: Oh, good. Well, I want to say this. Uh, Esau, you are a professor of New Testament. Yes. Right?
3: Yes. Yes. Supposedly.
2: Now, I know you are. That's the truth at Wheaton. And I'm going to tell you something. I am starting seminary in August.
3: You are? Where?
2: At Denver. What? What? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> you bear it the lead. Like I thought that you were going to say, "I'm coming to Wheaton, Wheaton. and we, will you teach me?"
2: No, but I the lead is getting better. There's okay. more. Okay, so okay. let me just continue to tell you. I'm starting seminary at Denver in the fall. I got a syllabus for my first class yesterday. Okay, and there's like seven books on seven it. Seven books, and one of them is yours. Look
3: at this. I made it. I made it to Reading Denver. Reading while black. Reading while black in Denver. <laughs>
2: So I, I'm reading all the books. I've never heard of anyone. And then it was like, Esau Macaulay, reading all the oh, like. And I, I literally it. told my husband, I'm like, I'm like student of the year because I've already read this and book. You already
3: read it. That's You know, that's the reason why I wrote it is so that students would be ahead and they'd have <laughs> one less thing at, the, at, the, at the, pile of the top of the list of things they have to do every semester.
2: Okay. Now, in all seriousness, this may not be that big of a deal to you because you are a professor. You're an academic. That would really be crazy to me if I was like, oh, someone came to me and said, I am starting school and your book is on the syllabus. Does that do anything to you? Or is this like this old um, news?
3: I mean, it's never it's old news. news. It's, it's old no, news. No, 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 it's not old news. It's not old news. I want to say I am grateful that people still read my book. I actually wake up some mornings and go, I can't believe people are still reading the book. I've also found out that it actually takes people two or three years to kind of read a book. In other words, you spend all of this time working on the book, you're excited about it. And then the book comes out. And then it's new to you for like, you know, three or four months. And then mm-hmm. you're just kind of on to the next thing. And there's still people who are discovering like your work over and over yeah. again. And it's new. I got an email this other day that was inviting me to come and speak to um, this conference said, we want to talk about your new book, Reading My Black. And I was like, it came out in 2020, but thank you. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank so you. I'd love I, to. I'd love to, but it is, it is interesting <laughs> that people are still discovering something that you wrote. Um, you, and you just don't, you never know when a book's going to to stay with people. And so it's, it was a tremendous, it's a tremendous honor. And I'm not, I'm not kidding when I say, anytime someone says they're still reading it, I also, I still get that sense of like, I, what yeah. do you say? Thank you. I don't know. How do you, how do you, what the response is? I'm awesome. Is. Of course you are reading uh, my
2: book. I don't I
3: don't, I've never said that. Of course. Sorry.
2: Don't say that. I'm no, kidding. Yeah. But I did think like, it wasn't even just like a friend of mine was telling me, and I, I'm beating a thought here, but I was like, my seminary, my first class I'm going to, like a man that I've had on my show that I respect that I read his book. It was one of the best books I read in 2020. And this seminary said, we think it's so good. We think every first year student should read it as well. I mean, you should be honored.
3: I, I am honored. And Denver is a is a great institution. So who is the professor?
2: I I don't know. I should know his name. but I might know him. You know
3: so I, maybe here. you shouldn't, because if it's a friend of mine, then ah. you just- then that that's just gonna ruin the whole thing. It's just your buddy hooking you up. So don't tell me who it is, so I can just say thank you to all of Denver.
2: Wait, you really don't want to know because I can tell you right no, now. No, I
3: don't want to know. I want to keep it a secret. Do he, you wanna... he, he or she can tell me when I find out.
2: <laughs> okay, I love it so much. I won't tell you who it is. Now I might have the upper hand in class because yes. you know we start talking about your book and you I'll can be say,
3: like, "Yeah, Esau told no. me." Like that's not even what he meant when he said that. Yeah, <laughs>
2: that's exactly. What
3: you that's, can say I'm going to yeah. text them. I be if, like my if, friend if they, Esau. If they say something that I, that, that I would disagree, just text me and say, Esau, they're saying this in class. I'll just call you back and say, hey, I'll just take over. It'll be fine. I'll,
2: p- <laughs> I'll put you on speakerphone. Put me on speakerphone. I, I said, yeah, here, here we are. <laughs> uh, no, but you have a book coming out. So this is the beginning of September that this show is airing. And you have a book coming out on the 12th called How Far to the Promised Land. What's the tagline of that book?
3: One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South.
2: Yeah. Um, I read this book already, and I read it on a family vacation to New Orleans. Huh. We took our whole family to New Orleans, and so I, I read it there um, in the South, and I live in the South. Um, and saw my favorite type of books to read, I read a lot of different kind of books, but my favorite type of books to read, like I would say in my free time yeah. that aren't really work-related, would be memoirs. Um, I love stories. I think that people have stories to share and stories to tell that it's probably, I would imagine, healing for them as they write, but then their story does something to the reader, and you captured that. Like, your story did something to the reader, and it was so great. Right before your book, I had read um, Viola Davis's book. Oh, yes. What's it called? I can't remember what it's called. Becoming Me
3: or something like that?
2: It's her memoir. Yeah, I know know um, the book you're talking about. Have you read it?
3: no but I should. It's called
2: Finding Me.
3: Finding Me. I think Becoming
2: Me is Michelle Obama.
3: See, now I want to get uh, Black women of of the United (laughs) States to listen to the podcast. I apologize. I should have been able to cite Viola and Michelle's (laughs) books, and they're both great, and I should read them too.
2: Well, (laughs) all that to say... Viola Davis has a pretty traumatic childhood and shares that and the book was just beautiful and I bawled my, my way through the end of it and I felt that when I read your book too that you led us into this journey with your family. So I want to start here and just ask you, why now? Why this? Why this style of book? I mean, y- y- yeah. we go from like, and I know these aren't your only two works, but reading yeah. while black into how far the promised land. Um, tell me how yeah. you got there.
3: Well, I'm I'm like really, I don't think I'm a real New Testament scholar. It's almost like
2: Don't tell Wheaton.
3: Don't tell Wheaton to, <laughs> in, in Denver. Well, I, I guess Edward what I'm Denver. saying is you have you have these things that are inside of you and people try to force you into being one thing. Are you an academic? Are you a popular writer? Are you a columnist? And so when I when God was gracious enough to me to give me the opportunity to write it was like something inside of me finally opened up. And all of these things that I really enjoy doing, I just did them because they're part of who I was. And so there's a way of doing your academic career where you kind of write serious stuff and you kind of gain the respect of the guild. And I feel like personally, my main career goal is it to like garner the respect of the academy, but to help people find their way um, to God and the healing. Mm. And so I when I sit down to write a project, it's usually with that goal: like, what is God doing inside of me that I can give to other people? And so, when Reading Why Black came out, it was because God was using my biblical studies stuff to help people find the way towards healing. When I mm-hmm. read a children's book, right, most people don't go from Reading my Black to a children's book. To right. as, as a matter of fact. This is, this is my fifth book in my fifth different genre. So at some point I, I got to repeat myself. Lent,
2: like um, Lent, the children's yeah. book, <laughs> reading my black. This and then what am I missing?
3: The academic monograph that nobody read called "Sharing in the Suns and Inheritance." So yes, so part of it was um, I I wanted to tell my story because mm-hmm. I think that I think that people sometimes think of success in. Well, actually, I'll put it this way. The reason I wrote um, um, How Far to the Promised Land, it's because sometimes you just find the courage to tell the truth. I am going to tell you like how the book really, really started. I'm not going to give you yeah. the fancy. I'm going to give you the true answer. So when my, this, you got to think back to the pandemic, um, like the height of the pandemic. When we were locked up, um, we were all like sitting... In our homes, we're getting stuff delivered, and people may not remember this, Why would they know. But my wife was a, a military reservist who had been called to active duty and she had deployed. And this is the time where people were just randomly dying. Mm. And so we'd get news that, you know, a relative or a friend had passed away. And my daughter um was what I would pray with her every night before you went to sleep. My my youngest daughter, Miriam. And she had this prayer that would like break my heart. She was like, I pray that mom and dad don't die from COVID it was just like her life before yeah. that she never really under she had been protected she, had, she hadn't seen yeah. kind of hard times we had to have a hard conversation about mom about death and life and all of those other things and i and i realized that i couldn't protect my daughter from the world mm. that the hard things about um life kind of visited her mm-hmm. and in the process of spending that time with my children alone in that house it wasn't just, you know, how do you talk about the hard times that are going on in COVID? It was like, well, daddy's been through hard times too. Mm -hmm. And so it was in that context that I began to tell my children more of my background to kind of help them understand that you can be a child and go through difficult things and survive. And that season during the pandemic of truth-telling Mm. kind of was the origin point of this book. It's like the last of the pandemic books that I wrote. There's four books that I wrote during the pandemic. Um, I thought
2: you were doing something with your life. <laughs> I was just in the corner rocking back and forth, wondering how I was going to make it. And so way this, to go, Esau.
3: This book was a way of saying that like, hope can... It was. It started off with my children, that hope mm-hmm. can come out of dark times. And it, it grew into how far to the promised land.
2: Yeah. You start the book and... I've, I've, I've heard you, you know, something that I do have on my side, I've heard you do an interview on this already so far. And, um, I think it, if I'm remembering right, it was with Dr. Moore and he asked you the question that I want to ask as well. You start this whole book with, um, you at a conference with Lecrae yeah. Yeah. and you were asked a question and I want to admit in my, like, even though I'm actively engaging in hard conversations, um, conversations about racial injustice matter to me as a Christian, also as a mom to black kids. And so there's where I'm coming through with this lens, but I can't remove that I'm a a white 45-year-old woman. I'll be completely honest with you when you said the question that was asked, and you can tell the story in a second, but I want to say that my first thought was like, oh, I didn't honestly know what the big deal was. Yeah. Yeah. And I confess that you with know, like humility yeah. here. um, And so I think yeah. there was a part of me that when I read that, how this whole, this journey kind of started for you and the way you answered it. And I, I want you to tell the story. I don't want to leave listeners kind of wondering what's happening. Yeah. I had to even go like, man, am I willing to sit and listen again yeah. and again and again yeah. to someone's narrative and story that doesn't look anything like mine without putting yeah. what I think on it. And so- yeah. I don't know yeah. if any other white people have confessed that to you or just yeah. me, but there well, it is. The
3: only, it's not even that many interviews, so maybe it'll okay. come. Across. I didn't realize it was that controversial because it,
2: it's not controversial. That's or controversial. The thing. Or,
3: I'm just... or like not controversial. It jumped out to people, but yeah. I guess that's good. It's the opening of the book. So I'm sitting at a conference with Lecrae, which is kind of it's it's funny because um, when uh, reading my black came out. I asked Lecrae to endorse the book. And if you want to have like an inception moment of uh-huh. like how this all fits together, yeah. is that I met Lecrae at the conference that I'm talking about and our relationship began and I eventually asked him to like endorse Reading My Black of this uh-huh. first meeting. But anyways, i met this meeting with Lecrae and we talk about racism and injustice in America. And the um the presenter actually gets a question from the audience and she reads it. And the question is, please tell us about the most racist thing that you've ever experienced or something along those lines. And the, I, I decline to answer that question because the way that it works is we, we want, she wanted, or the question wanted me to say something about my experience that would kind of move the audience to feel sorry for me and then kind of be less racist and create justice. And I think it's kind of hard to consistently ask African-Americans to perform pain. Mm. In other words, like we want you to feel like to reenact this trauma in Mm. front of an audience upon command. And Mm. like, does it actually require like black, like detailed depictions of sufferings
1: Mm. in
3: order for us to receive justice? And what happens when you tell those kinds of stories? And that's the only story that you tell. Mm-hmm. That, that what I wanted to understand is that, like, I didn't know if I, cause then what happens when you tell their story is the audience is, is, is litigating your story. So they go, Oh, maybe he or she misunderstood, maybe this. Mm-hmm. And they're deciding whether or not they believe your story. And then they're deciding whether or not they're going to enact justice. Mm-hmm. And so you are, are, are exposing yourself to an audience in a minute or two, devoid of context and the hope that that would spur them on. Mm. And like there's been basic and, and, there, and this this is a tactic that has been used in um, media and culture for years. So when when they would have like the water is turned on African-Americans mm-hmm. during the civil rights movement, they would put the pictures online to spur sympathy. And when when Emmett mm-hmm. Till was murdered, his mom said, I want an open casket so that people can see what they did to my baby. And so there is this history of trumpeting black pain. In the hope of obtaining justice, but what you actually know is that empathy only lasts for a certain amount of time, and then it dissipates. Mm -hmm. And so, what I really wanted to say is that no, like my story isn't just the story of these incidents of suffering. Mm -hmm. The being black in America isn't only suffering, but that suffering comes in the context of a wider story. Mm -hmm. And so, what I did is I I I I refused to answer the question. Here's this one small piece of my story, but instead I decided to tell the story of a people. That would be my family, my neighborhood, and my community. So that you put that one little vignette into a wider narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think that people are, are willing to kind of accept the vignette, but don't always want to wrestle with the kind of culture that creates those scenes. And what, what I want to do about. Well, okay. So if someone says, you know, something happened, mm-hmm. you know, you were mistreated by like the police Like if you were
2: to office, answer that question. Yeah, you're, uh, yeah, blah, blah,
3: blah. I'm sorry that this person said this to you. Yeah. And they have kind of done what they needed to do. In other words, I have felt a visceral disdain for this negative experience. And that's, that's it. They've, they've kind of, they've won, right? They've, they've performed what was required of them. But what I wanted to say is, well, what kind of world creates those experiences such that it's not mm-hmm. simply enough to be upset that something bad happened to me, mm-hmm. but to really think about how do I transform society such that these things don't recur on in, in a regular basis? Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you need to hear the story. Yep. And the story isn't just what happened to me, the story is what happened to my family. The story is what happens what America does to black families sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. felt like we needed to like um, pull the camera back and see the entire movie, not mm-hmm. just one scene. It's like when you watch a preview if you watch a yeah. preview, you know that 30 second clip can never tell you what the whole movie is about mm-hmm. if it's a good preview. And so yeah. I wanted to say, here's the whole movie, not a 30 second clip)
2: You know, it makes me wonder, and I hadn't thought about this until just now, there's been a lot of conversations, especially within churches, um, where people will, you know, take two different sides of like, well, there's no such thing as like systematic injustice, like we're past that, all the things. And I wonder, Esau, if you would say— the people who are willing to say that have never pulled back and looked at the whole of what might have brought someone to one particular situation. Yeah. Because like they could hear your story, your situation be like, oh, that happened one time, we've moved on, we progress progressed all the things, but without willing to see the whole thing. Would you think that would be true?
3: Yeah. And I think this is the reason why there's a divide every time something happens in America. In other words, what happens is there's a particular case with a police officer or whatever the incident is. Mm-hmm. And the conversation quickly ceases to be about the particular incident. It's a litigation of an issue, right? So does systemic racism exist? Well, it depends on what they say on this court case. And mm-hmm. if the court case kind of goes one way, then you know this side wins, the court goes right. case goes the other side. That, that But what I want to say to you is the question never resides on one particular case. And that's the reason why we're so emotionally invested. We need this case to be true or not to be true. And so people are emotionally invested. Your question is like, why are we so emotionally invested in these incidences? Because we feel like these incidences are probative. And what I want to say is that no, it's like there is no one particular incident that's going to prove the point. Here's the thing. And I'll use a New Testament example.
1: Because
2: you're a New Testament scholar.
3: Yeah, the deity of Christ is not settled by how we read John 1. It's Mm -hmm. across the canon. Right. It's not just in one place. Jesus, as the son of God, is across the New Testament. It's in Paul. It's in the book of Revelation. It's in John. And so you could argue about what the word became flesh means in John one, but it doesn't matter because you get the same truth somewhere else. And what I want to explain to people is we're actually not litigating the existence of racism through particular national instances of great controversy. This stuff is woven into the narrative, and one one concrete example that I give is there's this family. Um, my 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 grandfather um, is grows up as a tenant farmer, and as a tenant farmer, he's working from the age of four on the tenant farm. He's working with his grandfather, and they're they're out picking cotton and doing these things from from age of four. And my grandfather, he's a child at the time, is cheated. Like they, My family is cheated by the white family who owns the land. No matter how many crops they produce, they always say, you know what? You didn't make it. And that that means and this is actually true. My grandfather, because he was having to work extra hours on the tenant farm, gets behind in school while the white family who owns the land benefits from my father's labor. And then when they when they get to when my, when my father, then has to go to um school he's into segregated schools. This is not like five generations ago. This is like right. my grandfather and so mm-hmm. what I'm saying is the legacy and and and, and i and I'm me for going too far into this, but we all knew that the greatest predictor of um college education is the education of your parents. It's the biggest predictor
1: mm-hmm.
3: well then, if it was illegal for my grandparents to go to college yep. and my grandfather was economically exploited by um his um the white landowners in alabama mm. that had a direct impact on my mother's opportunities mm. right this is in other words this is not right. like a hypothesis it's just a fact and this happened all across the south my mother doesn't attend integrated schools into first grade and in the first grade they when she's going to these schools they don't want to teach her because they don't want to teach the black kid and the mm. black kids in the class my mother i don't th- know this part made it into the book but my mother when they're giving, uh, they're going across and they're giving children, the children are saying their names in school. My, mom, my mother's name is um, Laura Yan. But there's another white girl in the class who's named Laura. And, my, and the teacher goes, I'm not giving you a separate name. Your name's gonna be the white kid's name, so I don't have to remember it. And so my mom, for years, just went by the white kid's name because that was what the teachers told her. And, and she does that until she gets to like seventh or eighth grade, and she comes across a black teacher and she corrects the black teacher. It says, you know, no, no, my name is Laura. She said, that's not what it says on the things. Well, that's what the teachers told me. And so that kind of ingrained structural mm-hmm. racism is what my mom talked about. My mom talked about, sorry, this is, this is the last story. This stuff Esau, didn't the I book. love it. Please. So, and
2: that wasn't in the book, I don't think. Yeah.
3: So there's this I mean, stuff that had to get edited. So, just, yeah. so there's this other story of there is, they're in high school now. And, and this is supposedly an integrated high school. But the the white kids were upstairs in the high school, and the black kids are often downstairs, and there was no interaction. Mm-hmm. And then my mom wanted to get into this honor society. It was like one of the honor societies that with your college application, and like no black woman had ever been invited in this honor society. My mom did all the stuff that was required for her to be in the honor society. to helps with the applications to college, and she she presented to them, and the all white group says you're just not a good fit. And so my mom is materially affected that then has an impact on me. And so this isn't just like these cases where something happens on television and then we all jump on Twitter and fight about it and litigate structural racism there. This stuff goes up and down both sides of my family. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm trying to tell that story, I'm trying to articulate all the ways in which um these things impact us. And, and and. but here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. That's not the entirety of the story. That right. like my life isn't a series of racist events that happened to me. Mm-hmm. I do stupid stuff too. Mm-hmm. And the people around me do stupid stuff. And so how can you balance the reality of structural racism
1: mm-hmm.
3: that I think exists in the South with personal responsibility? We have moral agency. I'm not just acted upon, I'm an mm-hmm. actor. I'm not just the oppressed. In certain places, I participate in the oppression. And so explaining that story where I don't absolve myself of all responsibility, but at the same time, don't pretend that there aren't these other things in the way, it's a complicated story. Mm. And what I wanted to do was to tell a complicated story that is true, that will give us space to reflect upon who and what we are as a country and what we demand people.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that when you were writing this because you talk about how your journey into like thinking through your family actually happened through tragedy when um, you received a phone call that your father had passed away. And it kind of led you down this research and wanting to find out more about your family. Um, I guess what I wanted to know from you today even is like as you're learning things, as you're having to kind of come to terms with a broken relationship with your father Mm -hmm. that then he's passed. Yeah. What do you think in the whole writing of this book and researching here that you learned the most about Esau?
3: Yeah. Sorry for the people who don't know. Oh, me. You Esau. I know, not
2: your dad, you. Yeah. Oh,
3: So for for people who don't know, the book um, opens with, um, uh, the the narrative of the book is structured around preparing the eulogy for my father um, who passed away and I didn't know him. Um, very well. And I had to um write his eulogy and sorry, this, I know nobody would care about this, but I'm going to say this, but I was writing when I, I wrote reading while black after he died. So it's kind okay. of like a really weird timeline that nobody will care mm-hmm. about but me, but all the events of how far to the promised land go up to 2017. And then after 2017, I write reading while black Okay, And so in some sense, that that death had a tremendous impact on Mm -hmm. me and the kind of scholar and person I became. And I think that one of the things that I learned um, about myself is that, you know, they have they have this thing in television. I'm sorry. They have these movies where it's like time travel and like the rule it's in like um, Back to the Future. It's in like Marvel. And the whole point is you can't go back in time. Because if you go back in time, you just going to make everything up and destroy the multiverse or whatever. Yeah. But I realized that we can't physically go back in time, but emotionally, we're always replaying these events that happened mm. to us. And we're trying to make sense of them. And in some sense, we can be stuck in the past. That, that these events that happened to us can be so distorting that like, we can't respond to things in the present properly. And what I realized through the course of writing this book is that I couldn't change the things that had occurred, but I could write a different ending. In other words, this book for gave you, me a, a different yeah, ending for, me, for you. For me. Yeah. For me or, yeah. And for the characters involved, that I could end yeah. the past. In other words, these couldn't be unresolved stories, mm. but they could be stories that I can resolve. And not in the sense of telling a lie, but in the sense of saying, here is the wisdom that I did not have at the time to process this story. Mm. Here is what I wish I could have said. And I can say that in a book. I can say, I wish that I'd said this. Yeah. Or I can give people dignity in a narrative that they didn't have mm. in their life. Yeah. So um, there, there are tons of people whose stories, if you read the book, seemingly end sadly. Mm-hmm. Um I have, I have a, a, a cousin who dies of AIDS. Yes. I have um Gosh, you my- saw
2: that. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. The way that you spoke about your cousin and that journey of your family taking her in uh taking your cousin in and them sleeping in the, I I was like I can almost cry right now. I felt so emotional over that, that whole storyline.
3: That that story, um, and I'll just stop in, with, at that point. That story was probably the hardest chapter to write. And even though like I didn't know her as well um, mm-hmm. as I would have liked for as the reader will see, but to die of AIDS in the like mm-hmm. late 90s, yep. um, sick with with um lesions all over your body isn't a glorious end. Mm-hmm. Um, as we can see it, and as I saw it as a as a as a as a high school student, but what I could say is, You know what? Everybody else forgot about you, the world forgot about you, they just thought of you as this this black woman that people are tossed to the side, but I wanted to say, I remembered you, and your life meant something to me and it had an impact on me, and so I had the opportunity through my pen not to lie but to show, to show the beauty in that story. And if there is a central thesis to the book is that every life matters and that the struggle, like the struggle to, 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 to find meaning and purpose and dignity, regardless of how it ends, um, it, it's important. And so what I wanted, I guess what I wanted to do is to say, there are people who look at my neighborhood and my family and they might say, well, I'm glad that you made it out. Mm. I'm glad that you made it to a place of healing and safety. And then everybody who was there are just object lessons on the way just teaching me how to get to where I'm going. But that wasn't how I experienced them. I experienced them as people, mm-hmm. right? Who Who gave me real joy mm-hmm. and who taught me things. Not in the sense of like, I am teaching you this Easter so that you can go here. But their actual life as, a, as its mm-hmm. own thing taught me something. And so what I got from this book was the recovery of the complex beauty of where I came from. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to talk about something as both beautiful and broken.
1: Yeah.
3: And maybe this is the reason why I didn't want to tell the story at the beginning of mm-hmm. um, the book. It's like, I could tell you the broken part. But the broken part is only heartbreaking if you understand the beauty. Mm. So you got to see the whole thing. Mm. And how can you talk about the beauty and the brokenness? And this might seem like it's unrelated. But as I was writing the book, I had this idea of, on the one hand, people who go on missions trips. And I remember when I used to hear about people who came back from missions trips, and I'm pro mission, like, I'm not saying you should go on trips and help people. But they would say things like, oh, the people there are so happy, even though they don't have anything. I was like, yeah, they were probably happy, but they were also moments who was really sad. Mm-hmm. And so if you only see the contentment in the context of suffering, then you've only seen half of the story. If you only see the suffering, then you've only seen half of the story. And so what I got through the book was the ability to say to people, yes, it's hard being black and southern in America. Mm-hmm. Yes, the society does things to us, but we also do things to ourselves. But in the midst of all of that, there's a a beauty in that narrative because God is in the midst of it. And so Mm -hmm. I think that what I got out of the book was a a reintegration of my past and my present.
2: Do you think, I think about your mom and you mentioned the beauty and brokenness, and I feel like that your mom showed that throughout her life. Like she... It feels like she was able to see that, yeah, more see, than others.
3: See, you got it. You there's your golden star. That's <laughs> where you win. Because my mother is the hero of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, um, I'm sorry, you get all the Easter eggs. <laughs> so when I when I wrote when I wrote um, reading Wild black, if you open up the dedication, dedication said this book is dedicated to the memory of my father. We die before we ever got to see our name in print. Whatever else I am, I remain your son. Mm. And everybody who I'm gonna read, read
2: that differently now.
3: Everybody, yes. This so there's one sentence in which how far to the promised land is the explanation of the dedication of reading my black. That's <laughs> that's nerdy, but it's true. Yeah. And so everybody who read it thought, oh, his father must have had this really positive experience in his life. He must have been a great mentor yeah. and all of these things. But what I was actually saying is, you know what? Your, your departure had a tremendously difficult impact on me, mm. but it made me impart who I am. Mm. And so whatever else I'm going to say, like, I'm still your son. That was the point. It was like, he had just died. And so no one knew about this at the time, yeah. but that was my way of saying, I forgive you. Mm. And nobody read it that way. Cause why would they? So fast forward to, um, how far to the promised land. And they said to me, "Do you want to dedicate the book to anyone?" And I said, "Yeah, I want to dedicate it to my mother." And I used the exact same language. This Mm -hmm. book is dedicated to my mother. Whatever else I am, I'm still your son. But for her, it means it's a totally different meaning. Yeah, it means that like when he 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 shaped me by his departure, she shaped me by remaining.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: And I would not be who I am without my mother. Mm -hmm. She was the one who who pointed the way i mean i wish that I, I wish that i was a. I wish that i had control of the pen but the pen wants to do mm-hmm. um um what the pen wants to do when you begin to write but when i initially came with the title how far to the promised land what i wanted to do when i ended the book was to say that i was searching for the promised land but it was in your home the entire time that it was in the house of my mother Mm-hmm. Where all of these other things are raging around me, and all of these things were threatening to um, kind of undo us, she was the port in the storm.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And so there is, if there are heroes in the book, it's the black women. It's like three or four black women mm-hmm. who all play these heroic roles. But my mom is the central character. So the fact that you saw that is where you, is is where you want. And so and the other thing is like, and this is true. Like my mom's health is fine. Um, and she's gonna live forever because I'm just willing it to be the case. Uh-huh. But um my father died before, you know, he got to see our name in print. I said, I wanted my mom to get her flowers now. The funny thing about it is in, in my dream of dreams, I know this is never gonna happen, but I said, if they ever make this as a movie. I want Viola Davis to play my mother. <laughs> listen, I
2: could see this as a movie when I was reading it. So, so I, it's
3: funny when you mentioned Viola. So Viola, if you listen to the Jamie Ivey podcast, <laughs> I want you to play my mother in How Far to the Promised Land. Well, Viola. we have I'm other conversations
2: to have. I'm shooting, I'm shooting my shot. To the happy hour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm shooting my
3: shot, Viola. You can do this. I've seen you in everything. You will be a great version of my mom. Anyway, sorry.
2: She would. Yeah. And Viola, come on the happy hour while you're at come it. Come on the we happy can... hour, Viola. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. you're listening to this. I'm sure you're listening this. <laughs> <laughs> um that that I actually thought when I was reading this book, I was like, this would be a great movie.
3: Yeah. The funny oh, part yeah, about is. it is it's actually true. I mean, everyone says this, but like um the 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 stories that um and I not I can't give away all of it, but I would tell people when you read if and when you read it, Sophia's Choice, the the opening the the um chapter about my father and what happens with the gun is exactly how that story is told in my family. Mm. And um it just, it's just, yeah, it's God was at work in my family through the generations.
0: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.
1: Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends.
2: Yeah. Well, I feel like you have done something here with this book where you have really allowed readers to step into uh, the complicated of the human life experience, you know, and that's just what it is. And you mentioned something earlier that I think is so interesting is there could be such a tendency of uh, a majority culture to look in at a minority culture and say, well, this is this is the problem and this is the problem and this is the problem without seeing an entire narrative of a story. Yeah. And I think that we still see that happening today, as far as we people might say that we are in 2023, that that's still happening in um, under-resourced neighborhoods, yeah. in um, schools that don't have the things that the schools on the other side of the community have. And we're still seeing this kind of derogatory language about that without realizing these are humans yeah. who are having complex emotions and complex feelings, and we're kind of narrowing it down to one little bitty thing.
3: Yeah. I don't know if it's, um, everyone wants to blame everything on the internet, but I feel like we've become spectators mm. rather than seeing these people as real characters and mm-hmm. persons. Yeah. And what I mean by that is there is this idea that exists somewhere in Christianity. It has nothing to do with what the Bible says, is that empathy is dangerous that somehow empathy... I feel
2: like people said that recently, Esau. Let's just yeah, say, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah.
3: So I'm like, yeah, people actually say it. So this yes. is not... This, I'm not being... I'm saying, like... But this idea is that we have to steward our empathy mm. because empathy is going to lead us into theological error. That if we feel sorry for people, then we will compromise our values. So what we need is a cold, detached analysis. Mm-hmm. As if God didn't make us embodied beings. And if the right. Psalms themselves don't depict emotional experiences. And so the ability... To genuinely put oneself in the perspective of another person is not a weakness. Mm. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. Now, I could have tons of empathy for you and still ultimately disagree with you. For sure. But even the way in which I talk to you is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to say is that sometimes people talk about suffering under-resourced communities. They just have an utter lack of love.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And they just kind of treat it like a video game. Oh, these people should just work harder. These people mm-hmm. should just like as if these things never occurred to us to do, right? Yep. <laughs> and yep. and then it's like there is I want to call it a level of achievement as a prerequisite for love. Mm. So if you do these things, then I will have compassion upon you. But like, mm. how is that Christian? Right? right. The whole point is that when we're utterly helpless, like, sorry. Mm. The the way that I think about compassion. And justice and all of these things are embodied parables of the gospel, Mm. right? That that when we had literally nothing to offer to God, He was gracious towards us. Mm -hmm. And so that so that I don't have to judge someone's worthiness of my assistance before I assist them, right? And if 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 I'm a Christian, I also believe that no one's story is over as long as they draw breath. Mm. And so that no matter what they've done up to that point. I must believe that there is the possibility of real radical change. And so this sense that we perceive people as closed stories, that these are people whose lives we know are meaningless and they'll always be whatever they are. And therefore being compassionate towards them is a waste of resources. Mm. Uh, then that seems to me to be functionally sub-Christian. Yep. Because what actually it does is that we're not, oftentimes redirecting that compassion somewhere else. We just keep all the stuff that we have. Yeah. In other that, words, <laughs> uh, go ahead. Yes, I'll, leave it, I'll leave it. I will leave do I want to preach about it. But like, in other words, you're not saying I'm not going to be compassionate to this person because I'm going to find a, a more worthy poor person. It's like, because I don't have to be compassionate to these poor people, I get a bigger house.
2: Wow. I see that. Narrative play out a lot here in my home state of Texas with what's happening at the border with this lack of compassion. Like, well, yeah. if these people, you know, that kind, yeah. of, that kind of narrative language, these people, if they would do this, then, then we would have more compassion instead of meeting them where they are with compassion and empathy. Yeah.
3: And, I think, and I think that this idea that we have to protect ourselves from the tenderness that God has towards us mm. is dangerous Mm. Right. It, like, in other words, dispassionate analysis. Like, sorry, maybe I'm just a Paul guy. Paul stayed in his feelings. Like in Galatians, Paul does not give you a dispassionate analysis. He's like he's feeling the feelings, right? Mm. And when Paul says, "I'm in the, I'm, I'm in the, um, the, the, um, the, the birth pains until Christ is formed in you," mm. he's like, "I feel this stuff in my gut until mm-hmm. you get to where God has called you to be." And so, I feel like it's okay for a Christian to feel. Mm. It doesn't mean the feelings are the only thing. I'm not saying that it eliminates discernment. Analysis absence feelings. And the same thing is the dangerous feelings, absence analysis.
2: There you go. There you go. Esau, the, the thing about this conversation that makes it difficult is I just want to talk and ask you about the yes. whole book, but I okay. also want people to go read the book because okay. it's like a memoir. It's not like here's five things to help us with, you know, understanding the New Testament, and then we can yeah. talk about them. Um, I want to say. And I know I've said this a lot, Like I appreciated and loved and felt yeah. this book so deeply. Oh, thank you. And so you did such a great... I mean, I don't know if you could tell earlier, I got teary-eyed when I was oh. remembering the story of your cousin,
0: yeah. uh,
2: because you did a beautiful job of allowing us to enter into some really sacred spaces with your family. Yeah. And I pray and hope that everyone reads this book as well, and oh, they can you. see the complexity Of humanity. That's just what I kept thinking. It's like humanity is so complex, and we sometimes want to narrow it down to something so simple.
3: Um, I'm glad. glad. See, you get you get two because my this is not a criticism of like some of the people. When I was first writing the book, they were like, "Well, what's the book about? Like, what's the one sentence summary?" And I was like, "How do you summarize a life in a Mm -hmm. sentence? Um, It's just true, Mm -hmm. and I wanted." I wanted to write a complex book that didn't like have a bunch of neat bows tied to mm-hmm.
1: the end. Yep. When you
3: say complexity, you, you, you spoke my love language because on one level, it's a long reflection on the meaning of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. How do you yep. forgive someone who hurt us? Mm-hmm. On another level, it's so a, a deeply personal family story, mm-hmm. but it's also a story about race in America. Yep, But it's also a story, and this might be like the secret sauce it's a spiritual biography. Mm-hmm. It's my journey with God to reconcile what He was up to in all of it. Yep. And I wanted it. I wanted it to be like. And maybe this is like overly ambitious. I think about um, um, "Surprised by Joy" or something like the Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. There's these paradigmatic spiritual biographies. Where you see the character wrestling with God, and like you rarely get a black guy who gets to do that. Mm. And I said, "No, why can't why can't an African American person write a quintessential, like, Christian story Mm -hmm. about wrestling with God? But if you're going to write that book and you're black, you have to deal with race. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I wanted someone who was, was trying to find themselves in that kind of journey. Yeah. And the other thing is when you write a story about race, you write a race book like God doesn't normally play the role that he plays in the narrative. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to write a book that, that that stood on its own as a family narrative, that stood as a real commentary on race, a race narrative, that also had the, the providence of God right in the middle of it, because that's my life. Mm. And I couldn't eliminate any of those stories and tell the true story.
2: Yep. You had and to have so, all of
3: them. Had to have all of them. And so I'm glad that you gave me permission to be complex. And and I pray that the reader allows you to be complex too.
2: Well, I think that if we're being honest readers, we're all complex. And so what we yeah. want actually is we want complex. We don't want something tied up with a pretty bow because that feels yeah. like a false reality than what we're all living. And we're yeah. all living complex stories. And so reading someone else's complex story where there's hope involved and a spiritual journey and all those things is really encouraging. Um, Esau, okay. I want to ask you, okay, ask you know what I'm going to be reading next? I'm going to yeah. probably be reading your book again that I've already read for seminary, yes. but what are you reading these days?
3: I just finished the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. I think it's named, I forget, called Prophet Freedom. Okay. And I loved that book. It's awesome. Been one of, it was one of my favorite books. And I'm currently reading, this is a nerdy one um, called America's Book. It's okay. by Mark Knoll. It's about the history of the role, it's the role of the Bible, the Bible played. And um, kind of American culture, particularly his chapters on the Bible around the slavery debate. So Mark Noel gets a shout out. Like, what else am I reading? Um, a bunch of like uh, books. Sorry, my next book, I shouldn't put it on the Internet because people. The next book public, that you're writing? Yes, yeah, The book that I'm working on right now is on Paul and slavery. Um, and so I'm, I'm reading a lot of, about Greco-Roman slavery and the okay. debates. And so that's my current project. That's taking up all of my time. Fun books, I'm reading a bunch of like cheesy fantasy and science fiction, and I never tell the titles of those books because I don't want the internet to judge me.
2: Because you can't be trusted with what it is. Well, Esau, I'm so grateful for you, and I, I will read anything you put out, academic okay. or not. And so I just really respect your work, and I'm grateful for you and your work that you do um, online, not just through books, like everywhere that you're, oh, um, yeah. that you're writing. So um, thank you for coming back on The Happy Hour.
3: Thank you so much. I'll come anytime. Hello, happy hour people.
2: <laughs> Bring your friend Viola too next time. Oh, yeah, okay? ne- next time. But <laughs>
3: well, listen, the last time we talked, Tish ended up on the podcast. If Viola ends up on the podcast, even though I don't it's know you. Viola, <laughs> it's because of me.
2: I know. Thank you. Thank you.
3: All right. I'll talk to you later.
2: The happy hour is produced and hosted by myself, Jamie Ivy, with assistance from Nikki Ogden and Ashley Caldwell. And the show is edited by Jason Talley.
0: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust amica life insurance amica empathy is our best policy
1: walmart plus members save on meeting up with friends